have you ever become bound and determined just to spend more time with God in prayer? I think as Christians, almost all of us have been there at one time or another. Maybe it's because we hear the testimony of a faithful friend who's this prayer warrior and we think, wow, you know, I really should pray more often. Maybe we hear some message and it just kind of grips our heart and we're convicted. We need to spend more time with God in prayer. Maybe we just go through some really difficult, painful situation when we're left at our wits end. There's nothing left to do but pray. And so we go through a time like this and for whatever reason, we begin to block out time and we make these commitments. We say, I'm going to use this time and I'm going to pray. I'm just going to talk to God. And then you know what happens, don't you? Inevitably, it seems like some friend who hasn't contacted you in like 20 years gives you a phone call right during that window of time. The batteries of your smoke detector go out, and that's a noise you just can't ignore. Your, your kids who just haven't needed your attention like that, well, they need your attention in ways they haven't needed in a long time. You got to stop what you're doing. You got you to gotta tend to the situation. It almost seems as if the world begins to turn against you to prevent you from having this time with God in prayer. But sometimes you get there, don't you? You begin to start. You, you follow through your commitment. You begin to pray. And then you wonder, is God even hearing this prayer at all? You wish that he'd just kind of show up and pat you on the back, give you a high five, encourage you, let you know, wow, that was a prayer of faith. I'm going to take care of that one tomorrow. I'll see you again tomorrow when we meet like this. But you wonder, did God even hear? Is God even working? I, I don't see how the situation is changing. And so you wonder, is this even worth it? But you don't give up. You don't quit because you realize, you kind of look over the history of things and you know, you know, anytime that God moves, it's always because the people of God prayed. I mean, we see it in the scripture time and time again that the walls of Jericho fell after the people of God worshiped and prayed for seven days. I mean, you see it in the Philippian jail, right? It opened up after Paul and Silas were praying. The book of Revelation, the whole book is a book of worship. It's a book of prayer. I mean, John tells us in the first chapter that he was on the island of Patmos worshiping in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then it all happens. Then the whole book unfolds of John retelling us what he sees as he's a part of this just posture of prayer. A woman named Hannah prayed. She prayed the most desperate type of prayer, a prayer for a child, hoping that God would hear her prayer and one day he would remember her and this child of remembrance would be born. I want you to hear what happens when Hannah prayed. We're actually going to pick it up kind of in the middle of the story here. First Samuel chapter 1 verses 12 through 28. Let's check it out. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with her three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Sometimes the situation gets to the point where there's nothing left you can do but pray. I mean, you can't call anybody. There's, there's nobody to talk to about it. You can't fix it. It's beyond your control. There's nothing left to do but pray. And in distressing times like that, it's funny, isn't it? Someone who they've never really prayed before. You've never even known this person to worship God before. And they'll tell you, hey, will you pray for me about this? You'll go, you'll visit a friend, a family member in the hospital. They'll grab your hand and they'll say, pray for me. Will you pray for me? You've never known this person to pray. You've never known this person to talk about God at all. In fact, the only time that you've ever heard this person mention God's name is when they're using it as some kind of profanity. You know, I'm convinced more and more that people who use God's name in vain, who use God's name as a profanity, it's really this backward challenge where they're almost wishing, hoping in their heart of hearts, this unspoken prayer that, God, would you show up here? Would you do something here? This world is terribly, terribly broken. Could you fix things? Sometimes there's nothing left to do but pray. And so you try to pray, you, you muster it up, but there's just no words. Language just can't encapsulate the depth of your emotion, the agony of your heart. The wound is just too big. The hurt is just too deep that there's no way that you can possibly begin to tell God how you're feeling. It's all just so raw. And in times like that, we trust the words that Paul wrote in Romans 8, don't we? That the Spirit himself intercedes for us on our behalf with groans that not even words can express. Sometimes we don't know how to pray, yet the Spirit himself intercedes for us. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray in times like that. We only know we, we got to get this out to God. And the only words that tend to come out are, Oh God, Jesus, please help do something. Not that. Hannah, she had been pushed to a point beyond everything she could bear. There was nothing left to do. There was nobody she could talk to. There was nobody who could fix this. All she could do was pray. Why? Because she had no children. 
Now, I know in 21st century America, we look at a situation like Hannah and we say, you know, that's sad. We feel some empathy for her and, you know, that's a hard place to be. But we look and we still think, well, she still had her life. She still had her health. I mean, how bad were things really? But see, we miss the point of what life would have been like for her back in those days. I mean, it was bad for Hannah. In those days, in that culture, it was a man's world. There was no kind of social security fund. There was no retirement account. I mean, women in that culture, when their husband died, and husbands often died first, the people who would then look after her and care for her were her children. Hannah had no no children. This widow would have no one that she could trust her life to, to know that she would be looked after, taken care of, provided for in her old age. I mean, you remember the story of Naomi, don't you, from the Old Testament book of Ruth? How Naomi, she was just inconsolable with grief after seeing her husband and her two sons die. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, how how she just stuck to Naomi. Now, her daughters-in-law, Naomi and Orpah, or Ruth and Orpah, they, they were not required or obligated by law to look after Naomi because they were only related by marriage. But Ruth understood, I must stick to this woman. She, her God will be my God. Her people will be my people. We're going to experience the same plight together. Orpah, she returned back to Moab as she was free to do under the law to try to find another husband, to try to find a hope of a future. But in addition, just the pain and the agony of Hannah's heart, this woman who desperately wanted kids, in addition to just not having a future and having no one that she knew, okay, this person will look after me when I'm old. In addition to all of that, she also had the pain of believing that she was cursed. You see, you understand that in those days, and rightly so, children were seen as a blessing from God. This is a proper understanding of kids. And, and, and everyone in that day knew that if you have kids, you're blessed by God. This is a sign of God's blessing on your life. And Hannah, she's looking around, I have no kids. I'm cursed. So here's a woman, she's experiencing the depth of agony of having no kids. She's believing she's cursed. She has no future, no one to look after her, no one to provide for her in her old age. The situation for Hannah was extremely bleak. And on top of all of that, her home life was incredibly difficult. You need to understand, in those days, it wasn't right, but it was common for husbands to sometimes have more than one wife. And so Hannah's husband, Elkanah, he had another wife, and his other wife had children. And so Hannah, in addition to just seeing the jealousy of this wife having children, she not having any, I mean, she's experiencing that kind of pain and this rivalry anyway. And Elkanah, he notices what's happening. And so what does Elkanah do? He like showers Hannah with extra gifts and presents, trying to make her feel better, trying to console her in some way. Well, then the other wife gets jealous and she begins to taunt Hannah. She tells Hannah how she's blessed and how Hannah's cursed, how she has children and Hannah doesn't, as if Hannah needs any kind of a reminder. And Elkanah, being the sensitive husband that he is, he says to Hannah, oh, come on, Hannah, aren't I more valuable to you than 10 sons? I mean, you can just imagine the pain that Hannah was living in. I mean, just struggling for so long, hearing these taunts, hearing these empty words of consolation. I mean, it was a difficult place to be. And it drove Hannah to the point of of just desperation. 
And so she's experiencing all kinds of anxiety. She's depressed. The Bible tells us that she's lost her appetite. She can't eat. She's having trouble sleeping. It's a tough existence for Hannah. Things are hard for Hannah. There was nothing she could do but pray. And so she prayed. Hannah goes to the temple and perhaps laying down prostrate, maybe just kind of swaying back and forth. She's praying. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? Here's this woman who, she looks somewhat malnourished because she just hadn't had an appetite in years. The bags under her eyes from all the tears that she's cried, all of those sleepless nights that she's endured. And she's there trying to pray, moving back and forth. Her lips are moving, but there's no sounds coming out. The high priest, Eli, he's there and he's seen this before. But the only time he's ever seen this before is when people come to pray and they offer wine as a sacrifice. And before they offer their sacrifice, they drink too much and they end up being drunk. And so Eli, he watches this for as long as he can stand it. And then he intercedes and he scolds Hannah and he tells her, woman, you need to go away. You've had too much to drink here. How are you going to come into the temple, this place of worship, this place of prayer, being drunk like this? It's time for you to get out of here. But Hannah, she confesses to him that she's just praying from the depth of her heart, from the pain of her heart and how great it was. And in that moment, Eli seems almost apologetic. He, he says to her, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I've just never seen anybody pray like this before. He just assumed this disheveled woman moving about with no words coming out that surely she was intoxicated. See, Eli, in some ways, Eli had given up too. I mean, little did he know that the answer to his prayer was standing right in front of him as well. Because the son that Hannah would bear, this child of remembrance, Samuel, well, he would grow up to take Eli's place as the next great high priest. Eli's sons, they were just corrupt. They were dishonoring God. They were doing all kinds of evil things. Eli, he, was, he had pretty much given up too. Just wondering what would happen after he was gone. But when Eli died, Samuel would be the next great high priest. Eli is so moved by Hannah's prayer that he says to her, in essence, go in peace. And then he adds his prayer to hers. He says to her, I pray that, the, that God would grant you the desires of your heart, essentially. These are thoughtful words. This is a kind prayer, kind words. But don't you wish in some ways that this great, high priest Eli could have said something a little bit more profound. Don't, don't you wish that he could have assured her in some kind of a greater way than this, that he could have just said to her, you know, I've seen a lot of people pray, but I haven't seen anybody pray like this before. Yours is the kind of prayer that moves the heart of God. Yours is the kind of prayer that, that God honors, that God responds to. We almost wish that, that Eli could have, could have said something more. Because he's probably never seen a prayer like this. He may not know quite what to do. A woman alone, a woman so desperate, so single-minded in her focus, just the pain of her heart, the passion of her plea, as tears just stream down her face, her body swaying, her lips moving, but not a word coming out. I mean, this was quite the prayer. Maybe Eli didn't know quite what to do. Maybe the send-off wasn't quite all that we would hope it would be. But for a woman so distraught, it was enough. 
But for Hannah, it was more than enough. The high priest had added his prayer to hers. And do you see what happened next? Hannah went away and ate. Remember, the Bible had told us that she hadn't eaten for some time. She had no appetite. And now all of a sudden, her her appetite is restored. She's hungry again. She goes away and she eats. And more than that, her face is no longer sad. This woman who had tears streaming down her face, bags under her eyes, just the pain and the agony of her heart, all of a sudden she has a joy written across her face. But her situation hadn't changed her, from the world's perspective. I mean, she's still the same cursed woman with no future. But now, oh, Hannah is experiencing this joy So much so that the next day, Hannah gets up early and worships God. She praises God for who he is. See, understand this. Sometimes you might not know just the right words to say. You might not know just how how should I respond to this person in that kind of situation. I mean, that's tragic. That's rough. So what do you do? You add your prayer to theirs. You come alongside and you just stop and you give them your single-minded devotion. You give them all of your attention. You listen. You empathize. And you add your prayer to theirs. You, You pray right in front of them. Oh, I know this is hard. God, I pray that you would intervene for them just like they're asking you to. You add your prayer to theirs. Eli, he'd probably seen nothing like this before, not to this degree, not, not with this type of emotion. He might not have known exactly what to do, not, might not have known exactly what to say. But you know what? God did. And lo and behold, just a few years later, Hannah would come back bringing a boy, her son, Samuel. God heard Hannah's prayer. And Samuel would be born, this child of remembrance. The name Samuel means... God hears. God heard and remembered this desperate prayer from this cursed woman with seemingly no future. And he gave her a child, a child of remembrance. With Samuel, it was clear that Hannah was not cursed, but in fact, she was blessed. I mean, if you really want to be uplifted, if you really want your spirit just to get a jolt, you go and you read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you read Hannah's prayer in that chapter. And oh man, the joy, the excitement, just the thrill, the the love of life, it just pours off the page. She's a blessed woman. She's got a bounce in her step. She also has a future now. She knows that no matter what happens to Elkanah, if he dies before her, she's going to be looked after. She's going to be provided for. There's going to be somebody there to take care of her in her old age because Samuel is born. God has heard this child of remembrance is here. And so this story of Samuel, it tugs at our hearts. And it tugs at our hearts in such a way because we can't help but think about another child. A child of hope, Jesus Christ, because God the Father heard the wordless groans of a sin-stained creation. And he remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham and to the whole earth centuries before. He remembered that promise into a humanity that was cursed, a humanity without a future. He caused another child to be born, a child of hope. A child who came to save the world from their sin. A child who sees this humanity that is destined to experience 
uh, utter darkness, just weeping, gnawing at their teeth in solitary confinement to a world like that. He sent the child of hope to redeem them, to restore them, to adopt them into the family of God, to to give them a seat at the table, a place of blessing, a place of honor to this humanity that had no future, a, a future that was just empty in darkness with nothing but pain and agony and torture. He gives a future full of hope, a certain future. Here comes this child of hope providing a blessing and a future. And so Samuel, this child of remembrance, was born. And just as God heard and remembered Hannah, well, the time came for Hannah to remember a promise that she had made to God. Because she was there, when she was there before the temple, just praying in her agony, even with words not even coming out, She made this promise in her heart and she said, God, if you just give me a child, that child will be yours. He will grow up, he will be given over to you to serve you, to live for you. If you just allow me to have a child, I'll give that child back to you. Well, the time had come for Hannah to make good on this promise that she had made in her heart to to set aside this child for service. And so Hannah remembers this promise. She tells her husband Elkanah. Elkanah, he doesn't seem overly excited about it. Just tells her, well, you do what seems best to you. Just make sure you've weaned him first and he's ready to be there alone. And so the time comes and Hannah takes Samuel to the temple. Samuel's probably no more than a kindergartner, maybe not even that old when he goes to the temple to live there. And Samuel would learn from Eli. He, he would be trained in how to, how to read the Bible, how to study the scriptures, how to listen to God, how to pray, how to walk with God. He, he would learn how to impact people and how to, how, to, how to help people, how to serve people, the things that a priest must do. He would learn all this. He would be trained by Eli. So the day comes, one night, Samuel's sleeping, and God calls Samuel. Samuel thinks it's Eli. He runs over to Eli and says, hey, Eli, why are you calling me? Eli says, I'm not calling you. You need to go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. Here's God calling him again. Thinks it's Eli again. Runs back over to Eli. Eli, why are you calling me? What do you you need? Eli says, I'm not calling you, Samuel. You must be having a dream or something. You need to go back to bed. Third time, Samuel hears the call, runs over to Eli. Eli, will you stop calling me? Why do you keep on calling me? And then it hits Eli. Samuel, I'm not the one calling you. God is calling you. The Bible even tells us in this section that that's not how God worked in those days. This wasn't normative of God just to kind of call people out verbally at night when they're sleeping just to get their attention. You know, God doesn't work that way often today either. But this is what he does. But Eli, he's walked with God long enough to know, even though this isn't normative, even though this is highly unusual, this is what God is doing. This is how God is initiating into the life of Samuel. And so he instructs Samuel, Samuel, this is God talking to you. Here's what you do when God speaks to you. Here's how you respond when God calls you. See, understand, one of the most critical roles that mature Christians can play is to circle back in the lives of younger believers and teach them. Hey, here's how you walk with Jesus. Here's how you study his word. Here's how you pray. Here's how you serve other people. Here's what you do when when you wrong somebody. Here's how you should respond when somebody wrongs you. 
One of the most crucial roles that older, more mature believers have is for someone to initiate in their lives and teach them this is what you do. Because without that kind of counsel, you end up with the people unable to discern just the hand of God in the world, unable to see the child of hope, a child who provides blessing and a future. You know, it takes people with a little mileage in their walk with God, sometimes a little gray in the beard, just kind of been through, been through with the Lord a little bit because they've, they've committed themselves to studying and to walking with Jesus, to come, alongside this, to, to come alongside the world and other people and to say, hey, wait a minute. Do you know that God's word speaks directly to your situation and what you're going through right now? To come alongside them and say, hey, hold on just a second there. I hear an awful lot of complaining about this person, but have you prayed for them yet? Uh, it, it takes someone sometimes to come alongside and say, you know, I can see the anxiety written all over your face. I've been there before too. Can I just add my prayer to yours? One of the things that young adults desperately need is for older, more mature Christians just to come alongside them, to initiate into their lives, and to show them this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. This is what Eli did. And I know I gave Eli a little bit of a hard time earlier, but he was the one who taught Samuel how to study the scriptures. He was the one who taught Samuel how to impact others. He was the one who taught Samuel how to listen to the voice of God, how to impact people, how, how to pray. One of the things that mature followers of Jesus must do is to disciple younger people. Mature followers of Jesus must be disciple makers. Because the child of hope, Jesus Christ, he saved us for a purpose. He didn't just save us for heaven. He saved us to impact people here and now, to help come alongside people and move people from chair one, just this chair of connecting to the family of God, to, to chair two by growing in relationship with God, to chair three by, by serving other people and binding up the brokenhearted and giving them a picture of who God is, all the way to chair four by being a disciple maker where you teach people. People. Here's how you walk with God and disciple others as you're walking with him. Because to walk with Jesus and not to make disciples, well, as one of my former professors used to say, that is something, but it is not Christian. Well, Eli disciples Samuel. And from Eli, Samuel learns how to study the scriptures and how to listen to God. And it's Samuel who's going to listen to God and then identify this new king of Israel who Samuel himself would anoint, King David. And through King David, God would continue the process of fulfilling all those great promises that he had made to Abraham earlier. Israel would become a nation. Jerusalem would be founded. David would, be, would become the greatest king Israel has ever known. And it was Samuel who found David. David was Jesse's youngest son, just a little boy out tending sheep. And Samuel listened to the voice of God, found David, anointed David. Samuel, the one who came about because a desperate woman who was at her wits end pleaded with God with a prayer that not even words could get out, pleaded with God for a child. God heard this woman's prayer and this child of remembrance was born. And Samuel found David and from David's line would come another child, the child of hope, a child who gives all of us a blessing and a future. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hear the cries of your people.
And because you heard even the silent cries, the groans of a creation stained by sin, you sent your son, this child of hope, Jesus Christ, who to everyone who believes, you grant a hope, a blessing, and a future. God, may we walk in that blessing. May we disciple others just the way Eli discipled Samuel. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.